Welcome to my podcast, Tea with Twiggy. In each episode, I speak with a good friend of mine or someone that I find fascinating, all whilst enjoying a good cup of tea. I always enjoy these chats and have no idea where the conversation is going to go. And I hope you'll enjoy them too. I'm very excited this week because my guest is the most amazing historian. He's made programs like The Story of China and The Story of England, which I'm sure a lot of you have seen on TV. He's got so many amazing stories. I can't wait to hear them. Oh, Michael, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. I'm very excited. Total pleasure. Good. So now, first things first, most importantly, have you got your cup of tea? Oh, I've got a very nice cup of tea, as my mother would say. Um, What have you got? It's just organic builder's tea. I'm slightly um, fascistic about tea, I'm afraid to say, that travelling all over the world in these films, you can often be very disappointed by tea. (laughs) And and actually, it started many, many years ago. Rebecca and I, when we first got together, we used to go to, to Greece and you can only get, I shouldn't mention it, should I, but Lipton's yellow label tea bags. Oh, gosh. And they just don't do it. So we started this they custom of taking uh, tea bags with us. And I do it all the time now, wherever I go. And I was actually doing a film in China recently, you know, of all the places, you know, all the tea in China. And I was on a, and I was on a boat. I was on a ferry for 24 hours. And although they serve food, they didn't serve tea. And they gave, That's they, hysterical. They Not served it. hot water. But, of course, <laughs> I had my trusty supply of, well, all right, Twining's organic so breakfast tea. And, um, uh, and actually, I brought it out in the tea room in the morning on the boat. And the Chinese people on the next table <laughs> were also using it. They thought it was quite good. <laughs> and I actually, just to show you, your, your listeners can't see this, but... Um, this oh, that's is cool. oh, this teapot. That's so pretty. Um, you'll never believe this, but years ago I did a series following the route of Alexander the Great from Greece through Iran and Central Asia and I Afghanistan. <laughs> and there in the bazaar in Kabul in Afghanistan, <laughs> in the middle of the first war with the Taliban, and in the evening you could hear the gunfire on the outskirts of Kabul. Oh my God. There in the bazaar were these beautiful old teapots that were made, believe it or not, in the the imperial Russian china factory in St. Petersburg before Russia fell, you know, in other words, in the First World War period. Why they were there in the bazaar in Kabul, I don't know. But I bought two, one for my mother-in-law and one for us, and we've still got it. it's so pretty, nobody can see it, but it's... Is it painted flowers or do you, they yeah, must be painted yeah, it's, on? Yeah, it's a beautiful, well, lovely old fashioned Well, I have with stencils, shape. a beautiful pink flowers and tendrils. That of, um, I mean, there was a much bigger one, which I was very covetous of, but we were actually <laughs> trekking on foot over the Hindu Kush and I thought a very large teapot might <laughs> watch, get in the way. Watch me teapot! <laughs> <laughs> That's hysterical. <laughs> but you'd think in India you'd have got great tea. Oh, in India from. you get great tea. Yeah. 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 Actually, I mean, of course, in China, China, the tea in China is absolutely wonderful and, the, and it's magical because you go to these places, a little roadside place with somebody who's just got a little wooden kind of platform and a fire burning and, and, and bags full of what look like kind of bits of throw out from gardening, you know, old seed pods and things like this. And you kind of point at something and they boil the water up and they pour these seed pods in. And then it sort of bubbles <laughs> like, a kind of, you know, strange, strange scene out of a movie, you know, like kind or of magic. Strange brew. And then you taste it and the taste gradually changes as the infusion goes in. So, mm. um, yeah, I oh, know tea is a great thing. India, of course, is great because they serve... Well, you know, Indian tea, and it's usually ready mixed. And and sometimes, I remember one night with Rebecca, we were in some 
godforsaken place in the middle of Rajasthan, and and the you, we we went down to reception, but there was just a boy sleeping on a sofa, and there was no possibility of them making us tea. So we thought we've got to do something. So we walked out into into the road, and it was it was dark and 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 a bit of traffic. And we asked where could we find a tea, and we were directed down to the bus stand, and we said we want some tea, and he got he said well, I'll give, give you tea here. He said but um, we said. Uh, no, we want to take it back to our rooms. So the guy made the tea, and then he got a, can you believe this, a polythene bag, and he poured the tea into the polythene bag, knotted it up, and it's like carrying a balloon full of tea, and we walked like all the way do, back. We got, do you remember when they used to put goldfish in a plastic yes, yes, bag it was exactly the like that. So we walked back and, and, and had it in our room. So as you can see, we are tenacious and sometimes even ingenious tea seekers well i'm i'm very honored to for you to take tea with me i'm sorry it's virtual but at the moment um we have no choice do we we have no choice how how has this um lockdown and or two lockdowns we've been through now how how because how you're the great traveler of the world i mean has it really affected you this year how have you coped you and rebecca because you and rebecca are your partners i know and just for the audience and you work together, don't you, on all your documentaries? We do. And, Which is lovely. Uh, I remember my, some of my friends, especially my, one of my oldest friends, saying, I could never work with my partner. It would completely, uh, you know, destroy everything. But Rebecca and I have worked together for a very long time, and it, it sort of seems to work, you know. Although, actually... It certainly does. Um, just before the lockdown started, I'd gone to China, actually, you know, only... Oh, had you? Uh, uh, well, early in 2020? In the autumn, in the autumn uh, of last year, you know, just uh, this time last year, a bit earlier. So it was just as the... Before the, the outbreak was about to start... And I had to go on my own because Becky's father was ill, so she stayed with him, and um, um, and, I, and I shot it on my own. So that's the last big trip that I've done. But during the lockdown, we've been really lucky. The, the greatest piece of luck is that we've got a garden, yeah. and we've we've it's got a, a little beautiful veg- garden. I've seen a, your garden. It's a little gorgeous. vegetable patch, you know. Where, so we planted lots of vegetables. We've done a lot of gardening. So that has been really creative fun thing to do and we feel slightly at a loose end now because everything's so kind of wet and gray Mm. but I've kept on doing things writing things and I've actually you will laugh at this um, many many years ago 35 years ago I used to be in a a band in Manchester did you just a bunch of friends and we used to play in really nefarious dives in Manchester, you know, the Lamplight Club in Chalton, which was later kind of burned down by its owner to collect the insurance. You know, t- t- terrifying place. We had a residency at the Lamplight Club and things. Anyway, we, we got together for a reunion about, you know, somebody's 60th birthday a few, few years ago. But then in the middle of the lockdown, uh, I think just before the lockdown, one of the band phoned me up and said he was playing with a trio in Manchester and the harmonica player had dropped out. Did I fancy coming and doing it? And I hadn't done anything for years. But I said, yeah. You know, so <laughs> I got the train up to Manchester. We did one rehearsal and we did the gig. And things sort of slightly spooled on from that. And I, we did a couple more gigs and recruited one or two more members. And during lockdown, we have been using these wonderful gizmos uh, where you record your track and you send it and somebody else adds to it or send their tracks. And we've actually mixed a few tracks during during lockdown. Oh, you should release it. So, I mean, really good. It's really (laughs) good fun. What kind of music? What kind of music? Well, we are. I, I, I don't need to tell your listeners given my age and kind of background um i mean we love the music of our of our youth you know of we course, love the yeah. late 60s music and uh, you know obviously blues and jazz so and it's country. kind of bluesy jazz yes that sort of stuff pat the harmonica player is like i one of you know the, the best harmonica player in the Manchester area he used to play in this wonderful R and B band who had a horn section called called Yes Sir. So uh, he's he's he loves that sort of stuff. Although he's a very ingenious and brilliant producer of his own music, 
Um, so we're a, and Dave actually played in the the guitarist played in the school band that became Genesis. Listen, you might be discovered as the new boy band. <laughs> 2021. <laughs> well, actually, actually, I can tell you a story about that. That all those years ago, we once decided, um, and the band in Manchester was one of them was a professor of psychology. You know, one was an architect, one was a photography gallery person. You know, I was doing TV, so we were all kind of middle class, kind of bunch of people. You know, but we decided we were going to take a. Um, a week off and we were going to do a tour of Devon because a friend of, a friend ran a quite a reputable blues and club in, in Plymouth. So we booked five or six dates and we went down in a converted ambulance and, <laughs> and toured Devon. Can you believe it? And on the Saturday night, this is my mortal moment in, the, in my history of rock music, was we did a really great gig in somewhere like Barnstable or Coombe Martin and at the end of the gig somebody came over to me and said here aren't you that bloke who does their mystery films on television <laughs> and I kind of beamed proudly and he said don't give up your day job <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant why a converted ambulance because you had to get all the kit in we had to, yeah we had to get all the kit in and uh, <laughs> uh, we had a very brilliant. eccentric keyboard player who for some reason, you know, strange vehicles used to pass through his hands and he thought this was suitable. The original plan was that we'd all brought sleeping bags and we were going to sleep in the ambulance. But oh after one God. night of that, we, we, we went to B&Bs. <laughs> went to the nicest hotel in town. <laughs> no, that, that, that wouldn't suit me. I've done, I've done a few concerts and things over the years, but I'd, um, I like to stay in. When I, it's funny, when I interviewed for my podcast she did the first one Joanna Lumley you know who does travel stuff as well and I said to her do you get to stay in really lovely hotels (laughs) you know because Joanna you know she's so gorgeous and she said oh no darling she said sometimes I have to go and pee in a field (laughs) so funny (laughs) I thought oh I wouldn't I wouldn't like so I bet you've stayed in some unlikely weird places i mean on your travels it must have you had any really really scary experiences well i mean i'm not i wouldn't characterize myself as being a particularly brave person but i'm curious twigs and that mm-hmm. leads you into all sorts of situations where, and i have been yeah there is a moment in the the alexander the great film where we're walking over the mountains north of Kabul, and you actually hear a gunshot <gasps> And then you hear, and I'm out, I'd gone walking away while the camera was taking some general shots. And you can actually hear the director, Davy Wallace, going, Mike, come back. It's dangerous, you know. So, yeah, a few moments like that. I think years ago, I did the Great River Journeys series that won the BAFTAs, and I did the Congo in that. And there there were a couple of occasions there when we were held up at gunpoint. And one oh of them, the, the, um, we'd, we'd moored by night in an upper stretch of the Congo River. And we were actually attacked in the night with armed paramilitaries or something like that jumping onto the boat. And it was quite scary for a moment, you know. And you couldn't kind of say, I'm from the BBC. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and I was the main, I was the main French speaker, actually. And I, I was trying to calm them down. And the, the weird thing about it, of course, was it was kind of pitch dark and... And we were sleeping under mosquito nets, and I was stark naked. And I stood up, and there were these, in, the, in the darkness, there were people were jabbing me with a gun. And it all sounded a bit hysterical, you know. And I was saying, you know, calm down, citizens, they used to call them in those days, citoyens, you know. And they, they arrested our captain, and, uh, and the next day uh, I had to go up. We were giving a lift to a young African woman who was going up to a mission station, and uh, she came up with me, and we had to go to some, you know, hastily assembled courtroom where the captain was, our captain was being accused of smuggling, you know. And and it wasn't, you know, they'd seen all our camera gear in the hold of the little boat. and, and, um, And so it was one of those extraordinary days where, but it was a moment where I thought the BBC does not know where we are to within about 400 miles. um, But I'm a great believer in, if you're travelling, you should always be jolly. You should always enjoy being with the people that you're with. 
there are the odd moments, but touch wood, over all these years, never really had a, a big problem, you know. And, uh, and obviously, well, that... I've never stood in the middle of Aleppo in a war zone with bombs no. falling. There's nothing you can no. do about it then. But in, in the kind of travel that we do, you um, go with your best foot forward and enjoy, enjoy it. Lots, lots of creepy crawly zones, snakes and things like that. Well, you have to kind of live with that, I'm afraid. That, that is what happens. <laughs> That's what I couldn't cope with, yeah. you see. I mean, I took, I had one of those moments where we'd been doing a series of films in South America following the journeys of the Spanish conquests, you know, against the Incas yeah. and the Aztecs. I know. And I, it was so fabulous. And I, I loved Peru in particular so much that when we got back, and you can, you're gradually getting a picture now, I'm sure, that Rebecca, my... My partner is very long-suffering, <laughs> and, <laughs> not least having I mean, to organise my, you know, the films that we make, but and, and, and cope with it when we get lost or do stupid oh, things. Gosh. But um, and I said to her, "We've got to take the kids to Peru. We've got to go." You know, and she looked at me <laughs> kind of quizzically, as if, "Are you sure?" You know, and um, and the kids at that point were about kind of fourteen and twelve or something like that, and. I knew this Mancunian who ran a pub in Cusco. This sounds like the beginning of a joke, doesn't it? But, but Barry, Barry is a Mancunian, Man United fan, who's an ornithologist, who married a Peruvian woman and runs the Cross Keys in Cusco. So I, so I phoned him up and I said, Barry, Rebecca and I are going to come back to Cusco and um, uh, we're going to bring the kids. And we want to do two really, we'd love to spend some time in Cusco. We want to take them on horses over the Andes, camping out. And then we want to go down into the rainforests of the Amazon. We want to stay with the, you know, in these camps that Barry was involved in, where the money goes to the indigenous peoples, you know. And he said, when do you want to do it? And I said, whenever. And he said, you realise it's the end of the rainy season and it might just be a little, it could be a little bit difficult, you know. And uh, so I thought, oh, we'll be fine, you know. So off we went. And uh, my long-suffering family experience an incredible trip actually it was an amazing trip but of course it was the end of the rainy season so we 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 had a four or five day horse trek over the andes in freezing temperatures up to about sixteen thousand feet wet inside the tents every night you know it was kind of on one level you'd probably say it was miserable but um on another level <laughs> when you look back our daughter our, our younger daughter our elder daughter, sorry, recently said, you know, is now 30. She said, I sometimes look back on that. She said, it was the first time in my life when I was never able to stamp my feet and say, Daddy, I'm not, no, I'm not doing it. You know, we had to do it. There was no choice but to go on, you know. Now, is it true I read in, I was just reading a few things about you, that you got lost in the lost city of the Incas. Is that true? <laughs> it's, tr it's true. It's true. That's I said to, so brilliant. This is, a, this is a really great um, uh, story of the Spanish conquest, you know, and they conquered the mm -hmm. Inca Empire in Peru and it was all, you know, rooms full of gold and executing the kind of Inca kings. And the, the last of the Incas fled into the deep jungles to this uh, city in the jungles over the Andes that was, whose site was only rediscovered um, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. And the only way you can get to it is you drive to a road head, a day's drive out of Cusco, and then you walk for four days with your gear <gasps> and uh, over, over high mountains and then down through the cloud forests, you know. And Rebecca, of course, we're sitting in the production meeting in London and Rebecca says, you know, oh, are you sure we, we really need to do this for this film? I mean, it's going to take days just to get the one sequence. And there's me going, same as Alexander the Great over Afghanistan in a war, you know. Oh no, it'll be great, Rebecca. It'll be really great. And so we did it, and and we got horse handlers, and we trekked for four days carrying the gear, and the tracks God. were just terrible. And those out. cameras are heavy, aren't Can they? Yeah, well, we put those on pack animals. You know? Oh, okay. So you, yeah, okay. You know, so you, you you're doing that, and every time, every night, the the Peruvian leader of the horse handlers, who was a great character, <clears throat> Don Juvenal, he would say to us, we're lagging behind. If only you wouldn't stop to do filming, we'd get there on time. And we'd go, <laughs> Don Juvenal, that's the point. So we finally got to the lost city of the Incas and Rebecca had decided that she'd lash out money on a helicopter that would come and get us out. Because otherwise, we're not only taking four or five days to get there, but you've got to get out. 
Yeah. So we did the filming, and they gave we gave them the coordinates for the for the the open patch in the forest where a helicopter could land. And the first day the helicopter was supposed to come, there was cloud cover, and we heard the helicopter go over, circle, we thought, it's here. And we've got all the bags ready. And then it vanished. And, of course, no mobile phones in those days, so we'd got ah. a heavy wooden box with a satellite phone in, which only had, like, two hours of <clears throat> juice in it. So David phones Rebecca from the clearing, and, 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 uh, and, and she talks to the people in Cusco, and they say, well... Well, we went there and you weren't there. So we said, no. So three days this happened. It was only the third day that they, oh they, got, they got us and landed and, and took us out of the lost city of the Incas. So it became a kind of legend, really, among <laughs> our TV friends that um, we'd gone to the lost city of the Incas. And <laughs> we were the only ones who knew where we were. And the people in Cusco were going, they've been there. <laughs> They're not That's there. So <clears throat> we we spent our time... Kind of fun in the. It was fun in the interim though. We organised a football match between the Brits and the and the horse handlers. So we had great <laughs> Peru against England football in the clearing. You know, and, uh, who uh, won? Well, we won actually. You know, oh. those, those those were the days when my knees hadn't given out. You know, and we, we won, and um, and we carefully eked out our supply of Portuguese I wine. Say. You know, and, uh, oh yeah, and the food. Did you have enough food? Yeah, just about. You know, rice and stuff like that. Great, though. Really great. I bet. Now, am I right in saying that this year you're celebrating 40 years of uh, doing your documentary? I'm afraid so, Twigs. That's yeah. amazing. Yes. I mean, the TV career is How long. How many have you done? Well, the TV, I mean, TV career is longer than that. I mean, you know, I'd worked in TV for quite a while, but 40 years of documentary making, and it's about 120 I can't quite believe it's that many. That is amazing. Um, I've, I've, I don't, I don't know whether I've seen them all, but I've seen lots and lots and lots. Because Lee, Lee, you know Lee, my husband. Mm. We're great, great fans, as you know, and they are absolutely. If anyone out there has never seen them, you've got to see them. They are. What's brilliant about you? Because there are other people who do them, but yours are so. They're so accessible. They're so they're not intimidating. You know, if people don't know anything about these subjects, it's like sometimes you tune into things and think, "Oh God, this is so." There's so much information, but you make it so, you know, interesting. And it's you can I can we can follow it, and we see the most amazing things. So if anyone hasn't seen them, or if you have, see them again. That, that's the wonderful things. You can watch them over and over again. We've watched um, the India the India one and the story of China. Yeah. We've watched them both through twice. And then the other one, which everyone should see, is the story of England. Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask, why did you pick, was, was Kibworth, which is, explain what it is in case people don't yeah. know. Do you know, this was, in this line of business, you think about ideas for a long time. I know. Like, I had this... You know, I wanted to follow the footsteps of Alexander the Great for years, but it was only that little gap in time between the war, Russian War and the Taliban that we, we went in, we were able to go in. And, that. and the story of England, the idea was that you take one single place, a village, you know, it can't be a, a town. It's got to be a, a community where most people yeah. know each other. And you tell the whole story of that place from the beginning um, through to the present day. And out of that, the story of of the nation emerges, but seen from the perspective of the ordinary people. And you're doing it with the help of the community and the schools and all that. And and, and I'd wanted to do it for for years. And I thought about different places where you do it. And and Kibworth was a very kind of ordinary place in many ways. You know, it's on the A6. It's got Chinese and Indian takeaways, and and, uh, and <laughs> you know, it's not particularly that attractive. You know, but. Um, a wonderful documentation. And we started off with this idea that we would do with Carenza Lewis, who's a great friend, and, you know, she did Time Team and all that. And she uh -huh. organised the villagers on day one to do um, a weekend of digging test pits called the Big Dig. <laughs> and we dug about 55 test pits across the village. Hundreds of people were involved and the kids and all that. Um, I bet they and, loved it. And it was such incredible fun, you know. And, of course, the mind-boggling thing was we didn't have any document for the village before the Norman Conquest, you know, 1066. And suddenly you're digging up 
uh, prehistoric stuff, you know, under Mrs. So-and-so's lawn, there's Roman pottery. There's, it was one <laughs> thing after another. I can remember that first day, Sally, who was the producer, saying, um, uh, do you think anybody will turn up, first of all, for the, for the initiation for the big dig? And I was kind of sweating, you know, I hope so, you know, because <laughs> we put an advert on Radio Leicester, and Radio Leicester was kind of choked disbelief when we said we were doing Kibworth. They said, Kibworth. And, and, and all those people turned up. And then Sally said, do you think we'll find anything? And I was sort of loftily saying, oh, of course we will. You know, and I had no idea what you're going to find. And, and it was such incredible fun. Whenever I get the train up to Leicester or Nottingham and, I, and the train goes past the fields and Kibworth oh. and under the little brick bridge and everything, I get a little lump in my throat. It, so how long did that take? We only did we it in a year. It. The whole thing was done in a year. Was and, it? Um, and wow. it was incredibly influential. I mean, David Oloshoga was just telling me recently that for his, you know, the history of Black Britain, they did this house through time thing that he's been That's doing. Right. He said, oh, he said, oh the big influence was Kibworth because you did all those things in it. You know, you did the house, yeah. you did this. Right. Um, well, you must have influenced all these young, um, you know, travel and hist- historical presenters. Well, I think because... just like I was influenced by... Uh, that older generation but yeah the younger generation you know Dan Snow and David and Bethany Hughes and everybody have all said uh... it gave them the gave them the bug of course do you have one person like a teacher or a mentor who kind of yeah I had I think made um... something click inside you that was like oh my god yeah I think I think when I was at school um we had two teachers of English who were mad about the theatre and they used to take us everywhere. They brought us down to London to see the original Joan Littlewood production in Stratford East of Oh, What a Lovely War. They used to take us to Stratford. So that, from somebody coming from an ordinary Mancunian background, you know, Moss Side and Windsor and, 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 and so on, I was lucky to go to a, a terrific school but at that school, those teachers opened our eyes to what an incredible buzz it is to be performing the creative arts. I know you agree, yeah. don't you? you know, yeah, absolutely. It is an unbelievable... Yeah, because it was world, a world I never yeah. knew anything about and never dreamt I would be anything to do with it. And then I would say it was like going into the secret garden. It was like, oh, my yeah. God, this it, is it, 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 it opens it like that, doesn't it? And you... You, the excitement of being creative, and I think if any if anybody has the chance to be creative, I say to my kids, I don't care if you make money or whatever you do. I want you to be happy first of all. But yeah, of if you can be creative, it, it's a it's a wonderful thing. So I think those teachers were the really big influence. When I wrote mm. my biography of Shakespeare some years ago, I, I dedicated the, the the book to those two teachers. It is often a teacher. I think teachers. Well, they're so important in all our lives. Yeah. And a good teacher can give you so much and a, a bad teacher can, you know, or a horrible teacher can, can you know, really do, bring do you so down. much damage That's to children right. because children are very special, you know, and they're all very different and everyone needs different things. So I think the teaching element i mean you go you go off and talk in school I do. things don't you i bet that's lovely yeah it is it? it's very very sweet Aww. very very sweet I, what I was... kind do you do all age groups yes or... i do actually i had a i had a bunch of nine ten year olds well not very young but i had a bunch of nine ten yeah. year olds in a school in rochdale not long okay. ago i've done quite a few in these places around manchester that have had a tough time to be honest yeah. in recent years yeah and they were yeah. doing history projects. And, of course, a lot of the kids were in, from the Indian subcontinent, Pakistan, origin, mm-hmm. their, their grandparents yes. probably, you know. And it was yeah. just brilliant, you know. And I, I was asking them about the projects that they were doing. And, of course, they all talk like this, you know. Like, and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, from my home, you know, that's my mum tried to bash that out of me. But uh, when I went to university, everybody still said I'd got the Manchester accent. And these kids were... You know, oh, I'm doing a project on the railways coming to Rochdale, or the Industrial Revolution, or the or the, the Rochdale Town Hall, or the kind of, and then one little kid of, of, of a South Asian origin, his family said to me, "Sir," he said, "Have you ever heard of Doomsday Book?" And, and oh, William the Conqueror. Okay. I said, "Yeah," and he said, "Well, Rochdale's in Doomsday Book," 
And I wonder what kind of people we would have been then. Would we have been villains or serfs or something? So I'm going to do my project about Doomsday Book. And that kid was my my kind of dream. uh, How brilliant. It's so funny because, you know, Carly, who, you you know, my daughter, she's got my love of my life. My little granddaughter is five and a half. And they this around bonfire um bonfire night they did the story of guy falls yeah. and she carly said she came home she, she was just she talked about it for a week she remembered all their names wow. what had happened she was just so and she's only five and a half but she was like and i said well you should steer her in that direction because it's obviously sparked her imagination yeah. i mean they obviously didn't get too heavy with them because they're only five and a half yeah. but she just was obsessed with this and she got on the phone to me and said Mimi I'm we learnt about this man called Guy Fawkes and the Tower of London and she knew all the names of the building I mean it's amazing and it's that they're, they're so open at that yeah. tender age and if you can capture their imagination it's wonderful yeah. they all isn't it? they all they always say that when we're young we're always fascinated by history and you listen to your grandparents yeah. talking and your parents, and, right. you know, I'm that generation who's, you know, they all went through the Second World War. And I, you know, pe- people say to me, why did, you, why did you get interested in history? And, you know, my mum used to tell stories of me crouching in a doorway during the nighttime blitz of Manchester because she couldn't get home. My dad was in the naval hospitals working with the, the, the wounded on D-Day. And uh, my uncle Bill... Uh, my mum's brother-in-law, he was at Dunkirk, D-Day and the march to wow. Berlin. And then he went back to Manchester and grew dahlias and was an accountant. And they're completely, you know, as if it went water off a duck's back, you know. And my dad's brother was torpedoed in the Mediterranean and swam through burning oil. And, and he went back to become, you know, a clerk in a button factory. And you just think the lives they led. So all those sort of things... Hearing those stories as kids, it's kind of, there's a sort of magic, isn't it? And then we grow up and we get other interests, perhaps. But then when we get kids, um, then the history comes back, doesn't it? And, you, and, and that interest... But I also read somewhere that you, when you moved, um, uh, there was a, a historic building called, was it Bag- Bagley, Bagley Hall? Bagley Hall. Yeah. It was, and you could see it out yeah. of your window or something. Yeah. Did, did that kind of yeah. trigger something in yeah. you? Yeah, when we moved... We moved out of Moss Side, which is inner city Manchester, and we moved to Withenshaw. And Withenshaw is a huge, huge council estate on the... It's where Marcus Rashford comes from. Oh, okay. Go M23! <laughs> <laughs> and and um, uh, I've taught in schools there too. And, and uh, we moved out there. And there was a school playing field behind the house. And at one end of the school playing field was this huge old hall that was boarded up. It was owned by Manchester Corporation. And it was made, it was built in 1330s or 1340s. Oh, wow. oh really On a site old. which had been, uh, uh, even in the Anglo-Saxon period, you know, even before Norman Conquest. So it was an incredible place with this great hall and all that. And when I was young, they, were, they applied to demolish it because it, it was going to be too much cost to, um, uh, you know, to Restore repair it. it. And, and there was a petition in Withenshaw, and we got 6,700 people signed this. And then Alf Morris, who was our great local MP, who was a real campaigner for the disabled, he did this wonderful speech in Parliament saying, you know, the, to demolish the hall would really, you know, it was more than local, it was national and even had European significance. It's such a historic building. So, and they saved it. So it is maintained, but still... They've not been able to raise the funds to really do it up and open it up. So oh, I'm, can't the National Trust help? Well, at the moment, fun, it, funds are difficult. It needs a million just to straighten yeah. it out, and probably more to Ooh. make it open to the public. So it's not open. To, it's not, it's open, not to open, open to the public. So I think our our feeling is, as a little local group, is that um, uh, it would be great that, to turn it into a facility for the people of Withenshaw in some way, or for schools or stuff like that. But it's ongoing. It, you know, there's as you know, there's. The money is short for things like that at the moment. You obviously know, I mean, I, I visited China once, but we only went to kind of the big cities. We went to Shanghai and um, Beijing. But having been all over China, 
you know, it's quite timely this year because of what has happened. Yeah. But they seem to be coping with it better than us. Yes. They seem to be have come through yeah. it. I think it's true. I mean, I'm in constant contact with friends in China and, um, uh-huh. um, uh, you know, doing interviews all the time because of the films we made and stuff we've been doing. Yeah. I was on the phone to China for an hour just before we came talking to you. And they, they have coped much better. But the Chinese have a very strong solidarity and collective yeah. feel. They're a society where, you know, 1.4 billion people, you're never out of contact with people. You've got to learn to rub along with each other. Otherwise, life would be unlivable in, in the conditions in which most people live in Chinese cities, you know. So when the Chinese government said to them, uh, we need you to do this, and they organised it on a local level. Anybody who needed food supplies brought to them in the blocks of flats or anything, all of it was organised at a local level. And wow. people obeyed the rules. The Chinese are amazed to see demonstrations in Trafalgar Square of people being anti-vax or these, these clamp lockdown conditions are wrong. You know, And it's not that the government is so kind of uh, heavy duty that people feel terrified. People... It's explained to them and they do it because they know that that's the best thing to do. So they have coped better, actually. Um, And it's a difficult time. You know, as you know, I've just published this big book called The Story of China, which is uh, something that I've been working on for years. You know, I've loved Chinese stuff when I was at school. I say your interest in China goes way, way, way back. I first travelled in China in the early 80s. So there's a long background to this and we've made a dozen films in china since 2013-14 wow so, i didn't so, realize um, that you know, have you seen huge changes there well huge changes from when i first went in the early 80s you know they'd gone through the communists 30 years of communism it's not a communist state now although of course although it's ruled by a communist party it's not a communist economy um it's you know you, you go to china today and it, i remember I hadn't been for a while, you know. I'd seen it in the eight in the eighties, and people were like still traumatized after thirty years of Mao and the Cultural Revolution and the Great Famine and everything else. And then I'd been a few times, but I hadn't been for a while before I went back. Rebecca and I went at the end of twenty thirteen, and uh, just to have a think and see some fr- old friends who were going to help us in the film. And you land in, you know what it's like. You get to Shanghai and you've got a, an hour or two to kill and you walk across the road into a Starbucks and you have a caramel latte. There's John Coltrane on the kind of <laughs> speakers. And you, you walk outside and there's kind of 10-storey high adverts for Christian Dior. <laughs> and kind of things I like know. This. I actually preferred Beijing because we found, because we love all the old yeah. stuff and we, we went round to the palace and all those lovely... What are they called? The hutongs, the little alleyways. Hutong, yeah, yeah, which they're not allowed to destroy within like a mile. No, right, of they've the saved palace. them, Is that right? finally. They're the bits yeah. we yeah. Old, And then you come out and it's like New York, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, old Beijing, I mean, it's... But what we didn't do, which I... Mainly because I get a bit squeamish about going somewhere that's not safe or has creepy crawlies, but we didn't get into the countryside and that must be what's amazing right yeah no it is i'm not very brave it is, there's, <laughs> there's corners of the chinese countryside that are magic and and years ago you know 35 years ago you had to stay in a communist party approved hotel and register and everything was very strictly controlled now you can go and stay in you know there's airbnbs you can go and stay in little family run b&bs in the countryside with which are so delightful and you know with a kind of coffee machine <laughs> the kind of <laughs> terrace where you can look over the i mean it, it's another world now traveling in china and these little boutique hotels uh, last autumn when i was making this film about china's greatest poet which was a journey film you know we stayed in these lovely little hotels it's a total other world so it's a difficult time. Can you speak Chinese? No, and beyond, you know, being asked, beyond the essential, yeah. you know, a cold and beer. In those the... places, do, yeah, do, do the people, does anyone speak English when you get Yeah, yeah, really I mean, I've been lucky to mainly travel with people who speak Chinese. But yeah, you can, oh, okay. you can always kind of get by and in the hotels yeah. and all that. But um, it is a fascinating country. It's not, they aren't the easiest times. I mean, what's happening, what the Chinese government's doing at the moment in several places you know, this terrible suppression of the Muslim population of uh, Xinjiang in the West. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of, uh, you know, what's happening in Hong Kong. 
They've got very hard line about things, and, I know. and it's. Um, and what do you? I'm, I, only because I'm fascinated. You know, there were these rumours about where the COVID started. Was it? Was it a leak from a, a, a laboratory, or was it from an animal? Yeah, it was crossover. It, it was crossover from the animal kingdom. Oh, so you don't think it nah, was nah. A, an expert? Have you heard those? Rumors? I heard the rumours, but you, you know the real experts in epidemiology and who know about all this say there's no doubt it crossed over from, you know. But they've shut that wet market down. They have, they? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and it's pretty clear it began there. Not, maybe not okay. absolutely certain because you've no idea how long these things are in gestation before they burst out. Because no. you said you were there just before Christmas last year, so it could have been starting in China then, couldn't it? Yeah, early October, yeah, yeah, a year ago. Um, the first cases in Wuhan supposedly were in November that were first noticed, but we didn't. But but nobody thought it was anything serious until the end of December, I think. And then you remember that doctor in in um, I know. in Wuhan started putting it up on his website, and then the roof fell in. 1.5 billion hits on his on his um, blog on the, on the night that he died. Isn't that oh amazing? Oh, my goodness. People forget. The Chinese people have got minds of their own, you know, and they, they've got to work within their system. Yeah. But they're thinking people who are know, know perfectly well what's right and wrong. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, please, God. I mean, for me, the news this week for the, about the vaccine is just has given us all that, well, you know, I think most people you talk to, that ray of hope that it's... Yes, um... absolutely. It's very uh, strange. I keep saying this to Rebecca. I've become really boring in my old age, but I keep <laughs> saying to Rebecca how incredibly privileged I feel. Don't you? I mean, you you know, how lucky we are in our lives to have... Uh, we've paid off the mortgage. We've got a garden. Yeah. And... Um, uh, how lucky we are and what privilege it was. We we always loved the theatre mm -hmm. and the bus stop outside here, in, uh, you can go straight down to Waterloo Bridge in the National Theatre. And we'd often, at the very last minute, get return tickets for something or go down. And and what lives we live in in London. The idea that you can go to the theatre any day in a mm -hmm. number of places and see something wonderful. You can go to live music. You can go to the cinema. And suddenly it's all stopped. And I feel um, you realise what privilege it is in the world when so As many Joni people Mitchell can't... said, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Absolutely. And <laughs> isn't true. she a genius, great, oh, alongside with the very greatest music yeah. musicians? I mean, she's a poet and she's like, oh. I think, the best. Yeah. And um, But do you think that through this we will come out and have learnt something about being kinder to people and looking after the planet more and because obviously by not traveling as much and not doing as much the planets you know i've read about things you probably know much more about this than i do but i've read about things where certain seas and oceans the fish are coming back and things are you know because there's yeah. not big cruise liners going yeah, in yeah. and yeah i mean it's really interesting we should really all you know i i wouldn't know how to organise it, but you know, it kind of it needs a, like a think tank of people saying, well, "Well, look, we've please God come through this with the vaccine. What can we learn, and how can we make it better?" I really think, agree, and I think this decade is going to be so crucial for humanity, isn't it? Oh, but it's amazing, isn't it, about nature coming back? We've even noticed that in our garden, oh, the, the, the number of birds that are, yeah. have come back, and we had a little. We we did the lockdown very, very faithfully from February, March onwards. And every year we have always gone, <clears throat> since before we had kids, to a little island in Greece and um, stayed with the same family. And the same family have come and stayed with us. And when it got to the point in August, when you were allowed to travel, we thought, shall we risk it? And having been so careful on the, the, you know, taking care, social distancing and all that. So we decided we would. And we, this, is a, this story is about nature coming back. And we, we got a, a late night flight to Athens, which was virtually empty from an eerily deserted 
Heathrow. I know, I've heard. And we, so we got into Athens about two in the morning on a pretty much empty flight. And the airport was pretty much empty. The bus was empty down to the port. And we got the ferry to our little island, which sort of good few people in because the Greeks were celebrating the big religious festival. And we stayed there for nearly three weeks. And you couldn't believe it. The, the animals and the creatures were all coming back. The, the, tur- the sea turtles were nesting again in three places on the beach. So the lo- they'd lay their eggs on the beach. So the, 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 the local authority had had to put a little fences around to protect them because, you know, they, they incubate and then they all come out of their eggs That's and they right. go down into the sea. So the marine, Mediterranean marine turtles had done that. The monk seals, the seals which used to live when we first went 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago, used to live at the end of the beach in this kind of rocky-like cavern area, and they'd stopped coming. They had come back. Is that had... because too many tourists, you think? Yeah, they yeah. Coming. And, and too many boats, people in the boats. And the boats are very disruptive as yeah. well. You have lots of boats. Yeah. And the dolphins, which we used to see when the kids were little in the area between our island and the next island, when you went on the little ferry, you, they'd, you see them jumping. And, and literally, I was swimming in the middle of the bay and flying fish leapt out of the water right next to me. So we saw it at the most local level there in the corner of the Mediterranean wow. that the natural world had come back. That is a, well, that, that's the upside of this horrible, yeah. horrible, horrible, horrible We've all year. got to learn. Haven't we? As I you think say, so. but what's wonderful? I mean, we you see them on telly, and 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 just from you know my grandkids at school, they are learning about that, and you know, and the, it's it's the young people's voices, and you know, they you get nine year olds coming out and saying, you know, we've got to plant more trees, and we've got to look after this, and we've got to do that. And, you know, they they feel very passionate about it. So they are the new generation, aren't they? We rely on them. They've got to save the planet. Yeah, but we... To be honest. <laughs> we, we did... <laughs> no pressure then. The other thing I read in, in, in your um, biog, that, that you, at school, you did some acting. Was that ever a kind of thing you wanted to get into? No, but I loved it. And uh, we had a wonderful dramatic society. And when I went to university, I did quite a few plays. And we even formed, there was a Shakespeare company that was formed to tour the States. So I actually um, toured the the East Coast with um, two Christmas holidays for four weeks each time playing Shakespeare with a load of great people who became you know, seriously. You went, you went to Oxford, correct? Yeah. yeah. Diana Quick, for example. Oh, yeah, she she's was she great played mate. Helena in the oh, in the Midsummer Night's fabulous Dream. Actress. Oh fabulous. She she played Helena in the Midsummer Night's Dream Brilliant. when I played Oberon. So a lot of really, really great people. So it was fantastic fun. But I, I it wasn't something I'd ever considered um you know, doing beyond that. But I dare say learning lines and performing and, and everything helps you when you're on the screen sometimes. You know, you kind of telling a good story and all that. But there was a strange kind of sequel to that, which was the the late Stephen Pimlot, who's the great theatre and opera director, of mm-hmm. course, English National Opera, did, tragically died died young. He was at school with me. And when I at school, I played Hamlet. He was Polonius. Ah. And, and years later, the phone rang and it was Stephen saying, I'm doing King Lear down at Chichester with David Warner playing King Lear. And he said, and I know this is crazy because you've just come back from doing the story of India or something like that. But, and it's right out of the blue. But you don't want to come down to Chichester and play Kent, do you, the, with, with David Warner? And I had a – my heart was pounding, you know. I can, I, can remember, I can remember being a kid at school watching David Warner do Hamlet, like yeah. a 68 student with his long red scarf, you know, the nihilistic, you know. You know. He was our hero, you know. And um, but I uh, discretion was the better part of valor in that in the end. But I always look back on that and think that could have been my serious acting debut. Debut, <laughs> absolutely. That's hysterical. That's absolutely hysterical. Well, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you. Thank you 
for coming on with me. And um, hopefully we can actually meet up next year. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't allowed, that be great? If we're allowed to see each other and touch each other and, um, you know, well, I, I really think there is a light at the end of the tunnel with this the vaccine, don't you? There is. <laughs> there, there is. is. And, and you're so right. I hope we all learn from it, including yeah. those things about kindness. Yeah, well, that's the most important, isn't it? But people have been... I mean... The, the acts of kindness you, you hear about and read about just in local areas of people helping each other. Yeah. And the incredible generosity of everybody who worked in the health service who put themselves on the line for it as well. I, you know, um, well, they're the real heroes, aren't uh, they? Yeah, yeah. A friend of, friend of mine who uh, uh, comes from Sudan, her, her uh, first cousin was one of the earliest ones to die. And, uh, you know, it, it really hits home, doesn't it, when it's somebody you know really well. Aww. Let's hope this is the beginning of the end of all yeah. that. And that lovely lady, the first person to get the vaccine, I can't remember her name. She was <laughs> yeah. 90 years old. She was brilliant. She said, if I can do it, anyone can do it. She was absolutely fantastic. I loved her. Great. Those people are amazing. Anyway, I'm going to love you and leave you to go back to your writing. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Twig. It's been such fun. Okay, bye. Bye. That was fabulous. Gosh, I could have gone on chatting to Michael about all his travels for hours and hours, but um, we don't have that time, I'm afraid. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I do. If this is your first time listening to Tea with Twiggy, please do remember to tell your friends. You can also subscribe for free on your podcast app and listen to all my previous guests. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy. Or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye. just heard a stripped media production. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. <laughs> to be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.